you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Thank you, Jason, for reading that for us. That will be the passage that we're going to study this morning. And uh, let's just go ahead and go back to the Lord in prayer and ask him to lead us through our time together around his word. Lord, thank you for gathering us uh, as a church family together. We come around and we want to lift our eyes above uh, the things that are going on in life and see you first and foremost. And then we want to follow you through the relationships and the circumstances that are happening in life. I pray that you would help us now as we study your word. Please uh, make it um, very applicable and please make it very weighty in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so this morning we are studying a passage that teaches us about biblical freedom. Uh, when you think about the concept of freedom, the following definition might sum up your thoughts. Um, this is just from the Oxford Dictionary. Here's a definition for freedom. The power or right to act, to speak, or to think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. So you can think about our country. And a couple hundred years ago, plus, uh, the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, it basically said that our freedom as a nation was to govern ourselves without the restraint or hindrance of Great Britain. So we didn't like the, the hindrance or the restraint that was on us. We were declaring ourselves free from that. Uh, last summer, our family went on a little history tour on the East Coast, and one of our stops was the Statue of Liberty. And that is the iconic symbol of American freedom, uh, especially as you think about European immigrants who are coming across, the Irish. Some of you have Irish uh, uh, descent, you're not descendants, but descent, or Germans, or Polish, and they were coming to America and looking for a place where the restraint or the hindrances wouldn't be upon them like what they faced in their former countries. They were looking to come from a place to a place where they could have freedoms. Uh, more recently, you've seen the news with the three American soldiers being killed in Jordan and 40 others being wounded, uh, they were defending our country so that we could continue and can continue to enjoy the freedoms 
to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Okay, so we have this sort of, um, you might say, everyday idea of freedom. However, when we get to Galatians 5, Paul is talking about a freedom that God gives to each individual on a very personal level. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul clearly and boldly states this in verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free and stand firm in that freedom. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The freedom that he's speaking about in Galatians 5 is this spiritual freedom. And then we get to verse 13 of our passage this morning where it says, for freedom, or for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only use your freedom as an opportunity not for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Okay, so what is this freedom? We've been talking about this in previous weeks. What is this freedom? Galatians 3, 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That language of redemption, Christ redeemed us. He has set you free from the curse of the law. And the law of God is that standard of holiness that we do not meet. We cannot meet. We've all broken God's commandments. We know we've broken those commands. And so because we've broken those commands, we stand in a place of judgment. So this freedom that Paul is talking about is a freedom from, like, remember the illustration I was just using, the people who came from Ireland, they were looking for freedom from their government or from Germany or from Poland. Freedom from. And so For us as Christians, you and I have been given a spiritual freedom. There's a freedom from something. The freedom that we have been given is a freedom from the judgment, God's just judgment that we deserve for breaking his law. However, it's not simply a freedom from something, from God's judgment. There's more to it. This freedom is also a freedom unto a security and relationship with God. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. We see this language again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to free, to liberate those who were under the law. For what purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so we're free from judgment over here, judgment that we deserve, but we're also free to be sons of God. We're in this new relationship with God. So those who trust in Jesus are sons of God, and this has deep, rich meaning for our lives. We're going to explore that, the significance of that. We're free from judgment and overwhelmingly approved as sons of God. Okay, now, if that's what freedom is, what is the expression of living in this freedom? And that's where verse 13 of our passage is going to be most of our focal point this morning. Verse 13 says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Okay, that's where you are. You're called to it. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, so what does this freedom look like? And here's what it is. Through love, serve one another. 
the freedom that comes into our lives that God has given to us is expressed through our lives with love that serves others. So as Christians, we can and we must live with a love that serves one another. Now, that is freedom. Personal freedom that God has given to you is freedom from his judgment, is freedom to be a child of his, but it's not just a status that we have. It's a freedom that expresses itself in everyday life. And when you're in this freedom, have this status of freedom, it's expressed with this true liberation that you are able to lovingly serve others. So that's where verse 13 is at, verses 13 through 15. But we have to get to verses 13 through 15. How does Paul get there? Well, first he talks about bad theology. (laughs) Bad theology will ruin your freedom. Bad theology will keep you from lovingly serving others. Okay, so let me give you just four characteristics of bad theology that I see here, starting in verses seven and eight. Number one, bad theology will hinder your freedom. Bad theology will hinder your freedom in Christ. He starts by saying this in verse seven. He says, you are running well. The Christian race is compared to a run or like a marathon. It's a long distance run. He says, you are running well, but who hindered you? Who cut in on you from obeying the truth? This persuasion that you have fallen under is not from him who calls you. All right, so God called you into this freedom here. God called you into this race that you have. It was a result of God's work. In our life of salvation, pictured as this wrong, long race, Paul says, you started off well, but something has extracted them. Something has come in their ways. And what he's referring here to here is the lie that had been circulating throughout Galatia. The lie that Jesus is good, Jesus is necessary for salvation, but you also need good works to complete your salvation. How is it that that bad theology can ruin loving others? When your focus is on Jesus saves me and I have to do good works, Where is the emphasis or the focus or the attention going to be when you're constantly thinking about how good you have to be? Comes back to yourself. You're not free to love and serve others when bad theology tells you that you have to earn your way. You'll always be focused or concerned about yourself. And we talked about this last week. That's why legalism doesn't work. Legalism, which can come along and say nice things about Jesus, is constantly telling people, well, you need to meet the approval of such and such, or you need to meet the approval of so-and-so. And legalism constantly has people turning around and looking at themselves in the mirror, focusing on themselves. Faith in Christ, faith alone in Christ, trust in Christ alone, necessarily turns your attention away from yourself to Christ so that you're not focused on yourself. Those who are most trusting in Christ and see him as their savior most clearly 
are able to forget themselves so that they can love and serve others. Bad theology, verses 7 and 8, will hinder your freedom in Christ. Number two, bad theology. Small doses of it have big consequences. Small doses of it have big consequences. And this is just simply illustrated in verse number nine, where he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, leaven is yeast. You've got a big clump of dough here. All it takes is a little spoonful of yeast to be sprinkled on top of that dough, and it starts to permeate that dough, and it starts to affect that dough. All it takes is a small lie a small bit of bad theology to drastically change the way you look at God, the way that you look at yourself, and the way that you look at others. And the lie is, I've got to be good enough. Jesus is good, is what these people were hearing, but they were also hearing, he's not good enough. You have to rise up. You have to earn an approval with God through your works. So this little lie that so many Christians find themselves under trying to live for the approval in a saving way of either God or an approval of others will hinder your freedom. What's Paul doing here in this section? He's getting very personal, addressing the problem that needs attention. You go to the doctor and the doc says, I have to shoot straight with you. You're not doing well. And that's what Paul's saying. You're not doing well. And his illustration of leaven is perfect. Just a small little practice of sin, a small little lie affects our lives. You think about Eve, just a glance at the fruit, a bite of the fruit affected all of us. You think about Lot, just glancing out. Man, I've got a little bit of envy to be a little more wealthy there. His life went to ruin. You think about David staring at a naked woman off the balcony of his home. Like just, just glances, just little acts of sin permeate our lives. Okay, is all lost with bad theology? Is there any coming back from it? Verse 10, bad theology can be overcome by the Lord. Bad theology can be overcome by the Lord. Verse 10 says this, I have confidence in the Lord. What does Paul have confidence about? First, he has a positive confidence. A confidence that he says that you will take no other view. Once you hear the truth, God will impress that truth upon your heart. And so Paul is just simply saying, we're going to gather around God's word. And when God's word is opened up, I'm just going to be confident in the Lord that he is going to lead you with his view of what's right. And second, Paul is confident that these liars are going to be judged by God. So this is a lie. It's going to fall under the judgment of God. He says at the end of verse 10, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. All right, so bad theology can be overcome by the Lord. God will take care of it as we focus on his word. Fourth characteristic, bad theology should be cut off. Bad theology should be cut off. Verse 11, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So apparently, a rumor was circulating that Paul had defected and gone back to teaching that, you know, you need to do these good works of circumcision 
under the Old Testament law, that was a major sign of the people of God, or observing the Sabbaths and the, the feasts and the holidays, or observing you know, certain dietary laws. And, and the idea is some lie was circulating that Paul went back to that. And he's like, if I went back to that, why am I still getting persecuted? Those people that are there are persecuting me. I haven't gone back to that. That's all that verse 11 is. Now verse 12. This fun phrase here. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This was always fun in seminary classes when we come to this verse here. What is Paul talking about here? Well, he's really taking a play on what has happened. What was the major lie that they were preaching and teaching? Got to be circumcised. And basically, he's saying, I wish the knife would just slip and go a little bit further on these men. I wish their man parts would be severed and fall to the floor. That's what he's saying here. And in saying that, he's like, the lie that they are promoting, it's terrible. All of this just needs to be cut, done. And let me put some emphasis on it. I wish these men would just emasculate themselves as a picture of what needs to happen. Now, you might say, is that acceptable for Paul to talk like that? Is it right for him to like, go down that road? Mark 9, verse 42 Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The point that we're supposed to take from this is that theological error is terrible. Theological error needs to be cast aside. So the way that Paul lines up verses 7 through 12 with verse 13, now coming back to freedom, is meant to show us that God does not want us to live our lives under wrong theology, under lies. And that's what verses 7 and 12 are about. So he goes to verse 13 and says, for you were called to freedom. So verses 7 through 12 don't live under the lies. Live in Christian freedom. There is freedom for you and I to enjoy. So part two of the sermon, simply Christian freedom. And I have four points in this section for you as well. Four points here. The first one, first characteristic of Christian freedom, you see in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What do we see about Christian freedom here? Number one is God simply wants you to be free. Paul says you were called to freedom. We see this in Romans 8, verses 28 and following. Romans 8, 28 and following says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, and here's that language, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The next verse. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, this is a privilege to think about that God called each one of us to himself. The call went out to respond to him, and he showed us our sin and then the glory of Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that those of you who are called into this freedom should live in that freedom. This is God's plan for your life. God's plan is for you to live in the freedom that he has given to you, which means that God is not an enslaving God. God is not somebody who puts you in bondage to other things or other people. He's a freedom-giving God. Now, what does this freedom look like in the life of a person? Second characteristic of Christian freedom. Christians are free to love. Christians are free to love. Verse 13, Paul says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, don't use your freedom that you have for the flesh. What does he mean by the flesh? The flesh is that part of me that does not want what God wants. The flesh in me wants sin. It craves sin. You can think of a nasty appetite that always wants more. A hungry dog that wants more. An empty bucket that supposedly just wants to keep being filled. That's the flesh part of our lives. The wants and cravings that are contrary to what God wants for our lives. Paul picks up on the flesh, and we'll see this in the coming weeks. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Move down to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. There's also idolatry and sorcery. There's enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. These are the characteristics of the flesh. And the idea was that once somebody comes to Christ and no longer is under the curse of the law, you've been rescued out from underneath the curse of the law, the thought is, well, maybe you'll just live in cheap grace. You'll take what you've got here and live for the flesh and enjoy all kinds of these things that you see in verses 19 and 20. And Paul is saying, no, do not use your freedom in Christ that you have to just run amok into all kinds of sin. Now, 19 and 20, I, I look at this and I think, if you are living in our culture, our culture says to live in verses 19 and 20 is freedom. All those sins that I just listed, our culture says live there and you're free. You think about free sex or be who you want to be. And you're under this impression that freedom is about all kinds of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and to indulge what I want on a sinful level rather than what God wants. That sounds like freedom. And so the world is saying, you're free to do those things. But here's the question. 
If all I can think about and all I can want is to do those things, if that is my appetite, am I truly free? No, I'm enslaved to that. And think about it. You take somebody who has gone down that road, take an adult child, and I know that this might strike close to home for some of you. Take an adult child who goes down the road of quote-unquote sexual freedom. Mom and dad lovingly tell their child that's sin, that's wrong. What is the response from that child? The response is anger, oftentimes a conclusion of I'm going to have to cut you out of my life. And why is that? It's because the child is saying, you are acting like a hindrance and a restraint to me. And the whole time, they're enslaved to these appetites over here. Now, that attitude of I'm going to cut you off, you see that in this illustration over here. Let's ask ourselves this question. Does that ever characterize Christians at a different level? For example, someone does something disagreeable to you. Someone hurts you. Someone says something different than you. And all of the sudden, there's strife, there's jealousy, there's fits of anger. The flesh is controlling you at that point. The Bible is saying... You are truly free, but don't use your freedom to do those things. Don't use your freedom to be envious. Don't use your freedom to be jealous. Don't use your freedom to be angry at others. You say, how is it that I'm supposed to be free when somebody has restrained me? When somebody has spoken against me or hindered me, how is it that I'm supposed to be free? And this is where the whole story of Galatians has been going. I'm free because I'm accepted by the one who matters most. I'm free because I'm accepted by God. I'm not in fear of judgment or rejection from him. What am I free to do? I'm free not to walk in the flesh. I'm free to look at people to my left. I'm free to look at people to my right who might even disagree with me and genuinely love them and serve them because I've been approved by God. And you say, how is that supposed to make me feel free? Think about it this way. Why is it that a mom can love a crying, screaming child who throws a tantrum slams his little hand down on the table when she doesn't give him a cookie and calls her a mean name. Why can that mom scoop up that child a few minutes later and says, you've been a brat, but I love you. You've hurt me, but I love you. However, if her husband says a harsh word, does a similar thing like slams his hand on the table, and even comes back and asks for forgiveness, why is it that those actions committed by the husband can cripple the wife for weeks or maybe years? Why is it that those actions might harden her heart? And by the way, it goes both ways. I'm just using that for illustration. The relationship between the child and the husband 
is different. God designed them to be different. But what is it that the wife wants? Does she want her kids' approval as much as she wants her husband's approval? She wants her husband's approval. And those same words from a child can land on her one way. Those same words from a husband can land on her in a very different way. And all of a sudden, she finds herself angry. She finds herself jealous. She finds herself shut down. What needs to be said to that man? Repent, confess, ask your wife for forgiveness. What needs to be said to that woman? Verse 13 needs to be said to that woman. You can tell her, I know that those words hurt you. I know that those actions from your husband hurt you. But you are free. You are free from your spouse being the highest and most significant source of your approval in life. You're approved by God. You are loved by God. You're a son or a daughter of God. And then you can say, since you are loved by God, you are free to love that husband who has hurt you. You see, what she wanted was approval. And that approval then becomes her freedom. And what the word of God is telling us over and over again is, Approval from others is going to be enslaving. You're just looking side to side saying, how can I approve you? Or how can I meet your approval? How can I impress you? That's wrong. Paul says, you are free. What is your freedom? You're free from God's judgment and you're free because you're a son of God. You've been approved by him. And now that you're loved by him, you're saying, okay, I can be free because I don't need my identity, my self-worth, my approval to come from others who are going to hurt me. I'm free from bitterness. I'm free from jealousy. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh and run down this path of sin. Use it now to serve and love one another. Okay, step back again. I'm hoping this kind of settles in our mind. Our cultural thinking is so shaped by winning the approval of other people and earning our self-worth by what other people think, that this concept and this truth in verse 13 oftentimes just goes in one ear and goes out the other. If we get it that we are free in Christ because of what he's done for us, and we are free from, yes, the judgment of our sins, and we are free because God loves us, Man, that frees us up from being people pleasers and unleashes us even to, towards people who have hurt us to love them and to serve them. This is characterized in Jesus. John 13, Jesus had spent three years with his disciples. And in the evening of John 13, he is going to be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and abandoned by the rest of his disciples. If he's living for their approval, he is smashed. He knows that's coming, and yet what does he do? He takes a towel, and he takes a basin of water, and goes around the room from disciple to disciple, all 12 of them, and lovingly serves them, even though they are going to hurt and deeply wound him. How is it that he could be free from responding in anger 
to them, their approval wasn't highest and most in his life. He was living for his father's approval. And then Jesus could say at the end of that chapter, this is why he could say that. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. There's freedom there. You are free. You can love and you can serve one another because of the freedom that God has given to you in himself. You've been approved by him. Christian freedom. Characteristic number three, verse 14. Christian freedom fulfills the law. Christian freedom fulfills the law. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When it comes to the law, I think there are two extreme errors that we want to be careful about. There was a very popular preacher a few years ago that said, we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You may have heard that. Basically to say, we have nothing to do with the law over here, nothing to do with the Old Testament. It's not even relevant for us. We're done with it. And then there's the other extreme error that says, man, you need to live under every part of the law. All right? Stay away from those two extremes and try to figure out what role the law is in our lives. Well, I don't know this middle section. It's like this, this, is like this thing I'm still trying to explore. What is the relationship of the law in our lives? Paul says this, the whole law, so he's pulling on the, on the Old Testament, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he speaks about this in Romans 13, verses 8 and 9. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. We'd say, yeah, don't do that. You shall not murder. Yep, don't do that. You shall not steal. Yep, don't do that. You shall not covet. Yep, don't do that. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what I just find encouraging about this is when you love others, you are fulfilling what the law was intended to accomplish. And just turning side to side to one another, you're like, how can I do that even if they've hurt me? You're saying, I'm not living for your approval because I'm free. I can do that with folks in this room who have hurt me because their approval doesn't ultimately matter. It's God's approval that does. And freedom in Christ fulfills that in our lives. Fourth characteristic, what's the enemy of freedom? Freedom has an enemy. Freedom has an enemy. Verse 15 says this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That language of biting and devouring is used of wild animals fighting and tearing into each other. It's a struggle for dominance. And we see this going on in the news every day. Our presidential election year has all the fixings for a good dogfight rather than biblical love. And I want to encourage us as a church that we are called above that. Even as we look at 2024, folks are saying, this is going to be a messy year. Who knows what's going to happen? There's going to be things on social media that you will disagree with. Maybe just turn it off for 2024. That's your New Year's resolution, all right? 
says, leave it alone. And that will free you to love one another. I think some of you are in relationships, whether it's marriages or friendships, where hardship has happened. And you know it better than anyone else does because you've had to live it out. You come to verse 13 here. It's true for us. God has called you to freedom. And now in this freedom, it's true. You're free. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. It would be good for you to think of one person in your mind where you just feel like, we've been buttonheads. We have had disagreements. I've had hurts. And over and over, your mind probably keeps going back to the words that were said or the actions that were done. And you've played it out over and over in your mind how you would rewrite that story or how you would re-speak what was spoken to you, how you would escape it. It's done, all right? And now, verse 13 says, you go forward. Can you get this? Can you lay hold of this in faith? That you were called to freedom. You don't have to live for their approval. Now you can love them. You can love them rather than serve the flesh. So are you devouring someone in your heart? Are you tearing them to pieces? Are they all that you can think about? You're not living in freedom. However, Christ offers you freedom. And for freedom, Christ has set you free. He went to the cross for this kind of freedom, free from the judgment of sin, free so that we could be approved by God. You're no longer under the judgment of the law. Therefore, you can be free. You can be free to love others. If you are a child of God, you can be free to love others. Let's pray.